poem you're about to hear is called A Storm Over the Lowther Hills. It was written by Jean Fairburn and is narrated by myself, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Do enjoy. Wisps of white mist chase thick fog over Lowther and dance in the distance on bare rocky peaks, where hills and sky once split now merge in ice sleet and torrents of rain streak upwards like fireworks and fountains, spinning catherine wheels towards far-distant mountains there. Diamond-cut rain slashes the empty terrain, where wind-wet eagles alone hold domain. The hills, now sunlit, are dressed and fresh-draped in cloth of green velvet, smooth, mossy crags shaped by a variegated palette of emerald earth's hues. Yellow and brown, purple and pink, and a sky of periwinkle blue, and sparkling jewelled raindrops, priced as in an auction lot, a ransom of precious stones for the absent King of Scots. Running storm water overflows every dry burn, and pours into channels below waterlogged ferns, and roaring past swollen rivers with riot and rush, plummeting over dropped waterfalls with a gurgle and gush. Replenishing dry drains and the emptiest of ditches, reviving the tincture and the fabric of richness, turning brown bracken patches after a downpour into molten copper fire that lights up the purple more. The tale you're about to hear is called Alfred, was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by Colette Parker. Do enjoy. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a bookie style that no one else could play. He was a top Alfred Hawkins hung on the gate. He watched as she climbed onto her bike and pedalled away. His heart had been awakened from its slumber. He stayed by the gate, gazing in the direction she had taken. He shook his head. He was too old for a sweetheart. But that was what she was like to him. The new young nurse pedalled on to her next patient, thinking of Alfred. Everyone had warned her how gruff and unpleasant he was. Alfred was nothing like she had been told. He was sweet, witty and charming. He had a wonderful twinkle in his blue eyes that took her completely by surprise. They talked as she dressed his hand that he had hurt using his wood chisel. The wound had become infected and needed regular dressing. They talked about everything and nothing. She found it easy to listen to his deep, rather throaty voice. He had wanted her to stay and have a cup of tea, but of course she had other patients to see, so declined the offer. She would have liked to stay and have a cup with him. Alfred went to bed tired but smiling. It was a long time since a young lady had caught his attention. She had reminded him of Lucy Lane, the girl he let slip through his fingers a long time ago. Lucy was red-haired, sweet and gentle, not fiery, as a red-haired is reported to be. The young nurse's hair was more golden, but she was sweet and gentle, just like Lucy. 
Alfred had a pang of regret as he recalled the memory of his last meeting with Lucy. She had been visiting with a nailing aunt. Lucy had been in his life for half a year, and when it was time for her to go back home, he just let her go. He did not say what he wanted to say. The words would not come. Alfred got up from his book after he had lain unable to sleep and went towards the large chest of drawers. He rummaged in the left-hand side drawer and then he went back to bed clutching a photograph. He lay his head on the pillow and held the photo up so that he could see it. Alfred was struck by the likeness. Lucy and the young nurse, Shelley, looked very similar. The following day, when Shelley arrived to dress Alfred's wound, he was not very well. He had a temperature and was feverish. Shelley waited for the ambulance to take Alfred to hospital. He showed her the photo of Lucy. She took the photo and looked at it. Why? That's a photo of my grandmother, she smiled. Shelley asked Alfred how he knew her. He told her of his meeting with Lucy and how they had become good friends. He also told her how he regretted never telling her that he loved her. I will tell her for you, Shelley told him. She had become concerned for Alfred and wished that the ambulance would arrive. When it did, she gave him back the photo which he put inside his shirt pocket. He was then taken to hospital where later he died. Alfred had no family and as Shelley had come to visit him, the nurse on duty gave her the photo that was so important to Alfred of her grandmother. Shelley took the photo and showed it to Lucy. She told her of Alfred's love for her. Lucy, with tears in her eyes, told Shelley that she too had loved Alfred but as he never spoke of it to her, she then went on to marry Shelley's grandfather. They both attended Alfred's funeral. They were the only mourners. Lucy stayed for a while, talking to Alfred. Then the two women walked away. Lucy leaves flowers on Alfred's grave now and then, and always has a word with him. They made him blow a bugle for his uncle Sam. It really brought him down because he couldn't jam. The captain seemed to understand. Because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band. And now the company... Arthur's Dahlias, written and narrated by Jean Fairburn. Despite the heat of the late summer morning, the dahlias shivered, their tiny blood-coloured petals stiff with cold and curved tightly inwards like the fists of newborn babies who sleep soundly through the hubbub taking place all around them. The dahlias who had slept soundly through the recent commotion had been the lucky ones. Others had been crushed by the carelessness of a cocky council binman nicknamed Elvis after his hero who sported a quiff even taller than the real Elvis. 
The Elvis look-alike was careless because keeping his quiff looking good was the height of his worldly ambitions. He considered his appearance to be a work of art and the rituals concerning its maintenance were manifold. The structure was a scaffold being gummed together with extravagant blobs of brill cream and the edifice itself glued into place by a whole can of maximum hold hairspray. Elvis had emptied the contents of Dora's new galvanised steel dustbin into a dust cart that morning. A dust cart which had prowled behind the young man like a famished tiger about to pounce on breakfast. So busy had Elvis been, singing a rude version of Elvis Presley's hit Heartbreak Hotel to the dustbin, much to the delight of his amused workmates, that he did not notice that a dusty wooden box had slid out of Dora's bin and fallen to the floor of the dust cart with a loud thud. The box, with its screwed-down lid, was still unnoticed when Elvis, always in a hurry, had hurled Dora's dustbin towards the recess in the coal shed wall, missed it so that it hit the wall behind and ricocheted into Arthur's once prize-winning dahlias, like the ball in a pinball machine. The dustbin had landed with a thud in the middle of the overgrown dahlia bed, and several glorious blooms, still beautiful, despite their gone-to-seed surroundings, had been crushed beyond saving. The dahlias, once the envy of every serious gardener in Arthur and Dora's village, had been sadly neglected by Dora since Arthur's death five years previously. She had let everything run to seed, including herself, and her neighbours, weary of her gloomy moods, avoided her company. Dora was up with the lark that morning to hang out her washing. She couldn't lie in bed as she used to when Arthur was alive. She missed the early morning a cup of tea he always made before cycling off to work, delivering the post. Spying her new dustbin, now the dent in its side, and marooned in the middle of the crushed dahlias, across Dora trampled carelessly over all of them, crushed or whole, to retrieve her bin and return it to its recess in the coal shed wall. She had bought it only the day before and lugged it home on the bus, determined to tidy up the place once and for all. Dora tore the crushed blooms out of the earth and dumped them on the compost heap in the far reaches of the garden, a compost heap which since Arthur's death had grown as tall as an Aberfan slag heap. Selecting the crushed dahlias for disposal, Dora had endured a strange confrontation, well that's how she saw it, with some of Arthur's dahlias which at the time she'd done her best to ignore. They had tried to get her attention, she thought, as she stood in the midst of them. They appeared to be either waving or shaking their tiny petal fists at her. The bravest of them had even jostled against her, seemingly desperate to attract her attention. Dora had ignored them though, assuming they were cross with her for letting the garden get into such a sorry state. Consequently, she had pretended not to notice the tiny crimson petals flailing about like the fat sausage arms of well-fed babies. Finally, forced to look at down at them, Dora was almost sick. She'd been pollinated. Ugh, yes, pollinated. Her legs were covered with disgusting, sticky, yellow pollen goo. She'd recoiled from the dahlias, crude attempt to reproduce themselves on her. They were shameless. Wasn't the flower bed crowded enough? The progeny of Arthur's garden had always been fruitful. Sadly, though... Her and Arthur's attempts to reproduce had ended up with one disappointment after another in the years which had passed rapidly. In the end, Arthur's sexual desire for Dora had withered with the years that passed. 
Dora hadn't been sorry. She'd never been too keen on that messy side of things, and she was pleased when Arthur's needs had waned with the advance of his years. Dora picked up her blue plastic laundry basket and headed back towards the kitchen. She was alone in the world now that Annie, her only sister, had died just weeks before. Annie had loved gardening with a passion that had matched Arthur's, and every summer holiday and every Christmas for 30 years, Annie had helped Arthur in his garden, rain or shine. But after Arthur's heart attack, Dora had watched Annie fade away. Her desire to spend the summer in Sussex seemed to have not been as urgent as it had once. Even though Annie hated this smoky mining town in the north, where she worked most of her life as a living housekeeper, Annie's fiancé Bert had been killed in the Great War during the Battle of the Somme and because Annie had never had her own home she thought of Dora's and Arthur's house as home. Annie's dream had been to live with the two of them when she retired but Arthur's early death had put pay to all that. Dora finished her cup of tea and peered absent-mindedly through the kitchen window sensing some kind of movement at the end of the garden in front of the compost heap. She screwed up her eyes, squinting with the effort of scanning the wreckage of smothered crops and tall weeds that had once boasted Arthur's prize-winning vegetable patch. All of a sudden, Dora's face drained of blood and became starkly white and sick-looking. God, it's not possible, she muttered. Dora could just make out an outline in the form of a silhouette. It was the height of Arthur. Another silhouette appeared on his right side. Oh no, breathed Dora, that looks like Annie. Yes, the two of them, Arthur and Annie. There they were, together, in the garden. The garden as it had looked in its glory days, just as she had seen them a thousand times before. Sharing jokes, laughing, playfully slapping each other on the back, weeding together with the long hose between the precision-planted runner bean rows, the hose that Arthur had bought for himself and Dora, his wife, not Annie. Together, always together, those two. While they larked about, it was always Dora's turn to wash up. <sighs> Dora tried not to blink, but in the end she had to. She blinked. They disappeared. Damn it, she cursed. Dora shut her eyes and concentrated on conjuring the two of them up again. Imagining Arthur and Annie weeding between the sprouting vegetables, Dora opened her eyes and almost shouted with triumph, Ah, there they are. This time, Arthur and Annie were almost hidden by a regimentally straight row of runner beans, built into a triangle-shaped structure like a South Sea Island longhouse, which Arthur had seen in a geographical magazine once. Built on stilts on a sandy beach beneath a bright blue sky, the colour of his eyes. It was a tropical paradise, but tropical meant mosquitoes too, and Arthur had almost died of malaria and dysentery. He contracted doing the ovated Gallipoli campaign, serving with the third Cheshire's. Dora appeared through the kitchen window again and tried to conjure up Arthur's presence one more time, but this time he was having none of it. Oh, everything difficult had always wanted Dora to sort out, and her eyes filled with tears at the memory of her recent ordeal and being summoned by Annie's employer just weeks ago to fetch Annie home. Annie had suffered a stroke and fallen dead at the feet of her employer's shop wife. Dora had dutifully taken the next train north to retrieve Annie, who by this time had been reduced to a handful of ashes in a wooden box. With the wooden box at the bottom of Army and Navy carrier bag with string handles, Dora had headed home towards Victoria Station.
wondering whether or not a carrier bag was a suitable conveyance, or a legal one, come to that, for transporting one's dead relatives about the countryside. Such a question was not one that could be asked without incriminating oneself. So she remained silent on the train, travelling back south, giving herself away, however, by nervously clutching Annie's concealed ash box in its Army and Navy stores carrier bag to her stomach. Dora reached home and was thankful to have not been arrested with the incriminating carrier bag. Having no plan ready and not being able to think of anything better to do with Annie's box of ashes, Annie was temporarily placed at the bottom of Arthur's wardrobe. There was no one Dora could ask for advice. Arthur had insisted that cremation displayed a worrying disrespect for the Church of England's funeral rites. Dora was too embarrassed and poor to ask her local vicar for his opinion. He was bound to suggest a full funeral service and perhaps Annie's interment in Arthur's grave as the two were related. God, Dora was not having that, no way. For the two weeks in which Dora was a resident at the bottom of Arthur's wardrobe, Dora suffered the ordeal of night sweats, hallucinations and ghostly visitations from Annie, who escaped from her captivity in the wardrobe. Annie was cross with Dora, but Dora didn't know why. One particularly disturbed night, Dora awoke to find Annie's ghostly self, mouthing frantic, silent accusations to her through bloodless lips, while sitting on her chest and reinforcing each point by jabbing at both eyes alternately with a long, bony forefinger. Two nights of being jabbed in the eye by a ghost with long bony fingers was the last straw for Dora. The following night, with the moon obscured by dense clouds and sleep still elusive, Dora crept out of the house and headed towards her new dustbin in its recess in the coal shed. Like a skulking burglar, Dora scanned the night sky for signs of life, and no lights being visible in the windows of adjacent houses on either side, Dora made up her mind. Clutching Annie's casket to her chest, she endeavoured to whisper some sort of prayer, but couldn't remember anything that seemed fitting. In any case, Dora felt like a blasphemer, and ever so slightly guilty, at deciding to dispose of her sister in such a casual manner. Not that guilty, however, and Dora concluded that she had no other choice. Shrugging, she placed Annie's ashbox carefully at the bottom of her new dustbin, knowing that it would be emptied first thing in the morning by the council's bin men. A strong breeze tugged at the folds of Dora's long woolen dressing gown as a stream of stinging raindrops splattered down on top of her bowed head from a sky alight with flashes of lightning and thunder crashes. The storm seemed to Dora to be of biblical proportions and then she was horrified to see that the eastern sky had begun to turn silver at the distant horizon. Panicking, Dora hurried indoors, ran a bath and peeled off her wet pyjamas and dressing gown what would the neighbours think if they saw her? But Dora was past caring. She even allowed herself a smile of relief. Or was it revenge? She wasn't sure. Two weeks after Annie's ignominious disposal, Dora decided it really was time to give the garden the overhaul she had promised it and hired a local gardening firm to perform the transformation. The headman and two spotty adolescents began work first digging up Arthur's dahlias, then defoliating his vegetable patch, dismantling the rickety framework which had once supported his bumper runner bean harvest, and finally tackling the compost heap. Dora had wanted easy-to-manage crazy paving to cover most of the garden, 
not wanting grass to mow or flower beds to weed and definitely no vegetable patch to hoe. But without warning, work ground to a halt after four days. There was much toing and froing and whispering behind dirt-caked hands that Dora was not party to. One of the spotty adolescents had, Dora found out later, discovered two mildewed shoeboxes at the bottom of the almost excavated compost heap, and each box was a decayed but still intact skeleton, whose tiny bones were dressed in the remnants of doll-sized shawls, and a bonnet each, one dirty pink, the other a faded blue. The bones seemed to have been carefully wrapped and buried, despite the unhallowed geography of their discovery. Dora was shocked, but could shed no light on the skeleton's origins. She had vehemently protested her innocence. The day a tall male detective sergeant and a stern-lipped female police officer turned up the day after the two shoeboxes had been taken away by two men in a black van. They removed her also in a van, this time a marked police van, much to the neighbour's consternation. Dora was charged with two counts of infanticide, failing to register the twins' deaths or births, and concealing or preventing their burial with the proper rites. Dora insisted the newborns had not been hers. She was no murderess, but no one believed her, and there was no way of proving the babies weren't hers. She accused her sister Annie of having given birth to them secretly, but the detectives were shocked that she should besmirch the name of an unmarried sister. They offered to exhume Annie's body, but at this suggestion Dora kept quiet. How could she tell them that they might find Annie somewhere on the county's rubbish tip? Arthur's role as the putative father had never been in doubt. Neither had Dora's guilt, despite her age and plea of not guilty. She was put on trial, found guilty and received a seven-year prison sentence. The latest news is that her appeal against sentence had failed and she was doing time in Holloway. Some inmates have reported that they hear ghostly voices, one arguing and then laughing, the other protesting and crying. There has been talk of sending Dora to a secure mental hospital instead of prison. We shall see. Time will tell. Edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Arthur's Dahlias were brought to you by Wavelength Productions and recorded in Huntingdon, Cambridgeshire. The poem you're about to hear is called Foxton to Wellford Junction, written and narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. Do enjoy. This poem is what's known as an acrostic poem, in which the first letters of each line combine to spell a word. Have a listen and see if you can work out what the word is, and I'll give you the answer at the end. The poem's called Foxton to Welford Junction, Grand Union Canal, Leicester Section. Now tell the locks a fond goodbye and revel in a well-earned rest, relaxing as we float on high, restored by our Arcadian quest, oblivious to all life's pain, wounds healing as we drift along, bewitched by nature once again, out of reach of the world beyond, 
abandoning our daily grind to find again some peace of mind. And the word you're looking for is narrowboat. The poem you're about to hear is called Nostalgia, was written and is narrated by Isabel Cook. Do enjoy. Nostalgia. Shops close Sundays, wash day Mondays, steam train rolling, country walk strolling, horse and cart trundling, hay bales bundling, horses jumping, racing, hounds hunting, chasing, foxes laying low, horses pull the plough, mangle ringing, church choir singing, bat and ball, old church hall, country fate, guess the weight, old men smoking, pints raised joking, Sun goes down on sleepy town, a way of life gone, sing a fond farewell song. Bumper to bumper, inhale fumes, Sunday market, car where to park it. People shoulder to shoulder, life's got much bolder. The fast lanes split speeding, the slow lanes receding. Sit on a steam train, listen to the falling rain. Think of the recent past, savour, make it last. Sit on a steam train, back in the slow lane. Today's poem is called Spring, was written by Graham Emmett and is narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Do enjoy. Sunrise shrouded in the mist, branches swaying to and fro. Spring is in the air. Woodland animals stir from hibernation, pink snouts appear from below. There's a buzz in the air. Green shoots break the surface, bringing colour once more to a barren landscape. The air is clear and the sky is blue. Soon swallows will return, heralding a summer long. Spring is in the air. The Betrayal, written by Alice Goulding and narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Keep the change, I said as I alighted from the taxi. I stood there clutching my overnight bag, daunted by the ornate front of the building. I squared my shoulders walked towards the revolving door and swung myself inside, hoping that the train of my wedding dress would not get caught and trip me up. Today, supposedly the best day of my life, had turned into a nightmare. For a while, things had been perfect. The hairdresser had created a masterpiece of flowers and crystals with copious amounts of hairspray and patience. The beautician had worked her magic and the effect had been stunning. I'd looked in the mirror and hadn't recognised the gorgeous creature staring back. Mum had wept and Dad had clutched his chest murmuring, So beautiful, before falling to the floor. I screamed. Chesney ran into the room, her hair half done. Ambulance! Get an ambulance! I knelt on the floor beside Dad, my wedding dress getting all creased. Silly of me to notice, but Mum had been going on and on about not getting my dress creased all morning. The paramedics arrived and Mum climbed into the ambulance. Dad was connected up to breathing equipment and wires were attached to his chest. Chesney had her arms around my shoulders as we watched the ambulance drive away with its blue lights flashing. You have to go. I'll let everyone know. Tell Marcus to meet me at the hospital. The reception might as well go ahead. Oh, Chesney, would you rather I came to the hospital with you? 
Let's go in the bridal car together. You can drop me off and then carry on to the hotel. The wedding will have to be postponed. Dad'll be all right. He has to be. I didn't bother to get changed. I wanted to get to the hospital as quickly as possible. The driver dropped me off at the main reception. Chesney, my best friend and bridesmaid, bless her, fetched my overnight bag from the boot and passed me my purse. You might need those, she said, giving me a hug. Your dad's going to be okay. Don't worry. She climbed back into the car, watching her leave, a heavy feeling dropped into the pit of my stomach. Shaking off, I headed into the hospital to find out where my dad had been taken. It seemed like hours, but it was only a few minutes before the receptionist told me where to go. I rushed off as quickly as the cumbersome train of my dress would allow. I still had my overnight bag clutched to my chest when I found my mum sitting outside a cubicle in A&E. The doctors are with him, she whispers, as I sank onto the hard plastic chair beside her and dropped my bag onto the floor. He was in a cubicle and I knew that was serious. Normally, you were left on a trolley for a couple of hours before you saw a nurse, let alone a doctor, and he had more than one doctor with him. I was impatient, waiting for the doctors to give their verdict, half to keep an eye out for Marcus to come running down the corridor. Marcus, the man I should be standing beside pledging my flowers in front of 200 guests at the Imperial Grand Hotel, his mother's choice. Why had Marcus not rushed to me in my hour of need? Veronica wanted her son to have the best of everything. The wedding was a vehicle for her to showcase her wonderful talent as a mother. I had very little input, apart from the list of guests I wanted to invite from my side of the family, all 34 of them. Marcus was loaded, as was his father Hugo. They were in banking and earned a lot of money. How much? I'd not asked. When his mother first showed me where they decided to hold the wedding, I told her that we couldn't afford a venue like that. Explaining the village hall would look lovely after Mum had decorated it. Veronica had been rather scathing and said that, of course, they would be paying for the wedding and the honeymoon. Marcus was no help. If Mother wants a big wedding, then I doubt the four riders the Acopolis will be able to stop her. Relax. Let us sort it. Just turn up on the day and enjoy it. That was not the point. To keep the peace, I gave in. Mum and Dad said they would buy me my wedding dress and I was to have what I wanted. Even Marcus took my side on that one. Veronica wanted some overpriced designer whose creations were frankly hideous, although they were thought to be groundbreaking in their originality. One or two of them could have broken ground too, looking like mini diggers with their side panniers and overlong sleeves. Where was Marcus? He should have got here by now, even if the Sunday afternoon traffic was bad. It was a couple more hours before Dad was stable enough to be moved. Mum was staying, but made me go. Darling, don't worry, Dad's going to be fine. We got into hospital in time, and it was a mild stroke, not a major heart attack. A warning for him to take better care of himself, the doctor said. I kissed them both goodbye, and Dad whispered, It was a shock of seeing my lovely tomboy turn into a beautiful woman. His teasing me encouraged me more. Then all of the doctor's assurance he was out of danger. Love you, Dad. Love you too, Pumpkin. Now go and marry that man of yours. I got a taxi to the Imperial Grand Hotel and ignored the disapproving looks as I climbed the stairs to the Royal Stateroom, where the reception was being held. 
Pushing open the door, I searched the guests for Marcus. A hush descended in the room, and all eyes turned towards me. I caught a glimpse of myself in the vast mirror on the opposite side of the room as the guests parted to reveal Veronica, standing with her arms folded, and Hugo sipping a glass of champagne. I looked like a zombie bride. My makeup had run, black mascara dripped like tears down my cheek. My dress had creases on creases, and my hair had tumbled down, the flowers hanging around my neck like a noose. No Marcus. Instead, his brother Sebastian, walking towards me, looking grim. Lucy, what happened? Chesney told us you changed your mind. How could she? She was my best friend. Seb looked at me with troubled eyes. I shook my head and mumbled, Chesney was supposed to tell Marcus to meet me at the hospital. My dad's had a stroke. And then I started to sob. Pulling me into his arms was just like Sebastian. Why couldn't Marcus have been more like him? Blimey, it was Seb I loved, not Marcus. Oh, Luce, my awful brother and that scheming hussy. I love you, Lucy. Why don't you marry me instead? The Necklace was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by Colette Parker. Do enjoy. Love is in the air Everywhere I look around Lucy held the small talk and Stephen had given her. She hung the necklace with its heart-shaped charm that sparkled with real diamonds, as real as Stephen's love for Lucy. Love can be fickle, and words just words. They can melt your heart or stab and cause your heart to break. And so it was for Lucy. She was walking home and she was still walking on air, when by chance she saw Stephen with another person. Lucy could not tell who that person was, but what she saw and heard caused her legs to buckle and her heart to break. Stephen was saying that he loved this person and that he would always be there for them. He held up a necklace and gave it to them with a horseshoe charm on it. She did not know how she got home, but her pillow was wet and her tears would not stop. When they did, she grew angry. Lucy returned Stephen's necklace, but she did not say why. She posted it by hand. Then as she was due some leave from work, she went to visit her sister in Scotland. Lucy told no one where she was going. She just left. Stephen picked up the envelope and opened it. He was hurt and bewildered. He went to try and talk with Lucy, but found her out. She was not answering his calls and he was confused as to why she would not talk to him. He had felt that she felt the same way for him as he felt for her. How could he have got it so wrong? He nursed his hurt with whiskey and fell asleep holding on to the necklace. He was worried by Lucy's silence and hoped she was all right. After the first week, he gave up ringing and going round to her house. He busied himself with work, but he still thought of Lucy. He knew that he loved her and he wanted an explanation as to why she'd returned the heart necklace. When Lucy came back, she did not try to contact Stephen. 
Her heart was still raw and she did not trust her temper. One day the inevitable happened. The two met. Lucy saw Stephen, who was walking with a gorgeous young lady. She had auburn hair that hung over her shoulders. They were walking and laughing. Lucy turned, but she was not quick enough, and Stephen ran up to her. They stood, and Lucy was aware of this gorgeous creature hovering. Stephen gulped and asked Lucy the burning question as to why she had returned his gift. Lucy could not help herself. She let loose her tongue, and her anger spilled out. Stephen and the gorgeous creature looked at one another. Lucy noticed that she was wearing a chain with a horseshoe. This must have been the person he told that he loved and would always be there for them. Stephen spoke. Lucy, meet my sister, Pat. Lucy went red. She got it all wrong. Do you still love me, Stephen? she asked. Yes, you silly goose, of course I do, Stephen replied. Then reaching into his top pocket, he brought out the necklace and put it around Lucy's neck. She touched the heart that hung on the chain. I love both of you, but I love you differently to my sister, Stephen told Lucy. They hugged and the three of them walked off into the future, which looked bright. Lucy's heart was well and truly chained. And it's there when I look in your eyes Love is in the air In the whisper of the tree Love is in the air In the thunder of the sea You was written by Alice Goulding and is narrated by Roger Ems You woke me with your bawling day you entered this world. You were impatient to be born and arrived a week early. Your mother never made it to the shops. You were complaining loudly at the indignity of emerging into fresh country air when the ambulance finally arrived. Your skin was pink and you had a shock of black hair and your eyes were the colour of the sky. They wrapped you in a blanket and took you away. You were loved. Your mother walked you in your pram and showed you off to all her friends and neighbours. You giggled and smiled, accepting compliments without question as if by right. You grew and when your sister came along, you had already learned to walk. Your chubby little legs were no match for your mother's long stride, but determined to keep up, you trotted beside her until you fell and grazed your knees, whereupon she picked you up and carried you. You learned to ride a bicycle with training wheels. You went so fast the training wheels barely touched me. Watching you was the boy from next door. When you saw him, he made funny faces and made you laugh. 
when the training wheels came off. You raced against each other, but after you beat him, he refused to race you again. You were excited on your first day at school and you loved your books. Every day you would go to the library and exchange one book for another. The boy made fun of you until one day you hit him with your book Ow. and he never made fun of you again. You walked your sister to school on her first day and on every day after that. The two of you were inseparable. When you finished school, you went away to college. Your sister missed you and looked sad every day. She walked to school without you. When you came home, the boy from next door had grown into a handsome young man. He remembered your smile and your determination to be better than him. He wanted to get to know you. The flowers he sent and the chocolates he bought persuaded you to agree. He made you laugh <laughs> and when you smiled your face shone with happiness. When he got down on one knee and asked you to marry him, you did not hesitate. You looked so beautiful in your wedding gown with flowers in your hair. The posy you carried, you threw to your sister and she held it up triumphantly, grinning at the baker's son. Your new house was not far from me and you walked by me every day. Your hair was long and you were young and carefree. He met you that day with a letter. It was too important for him to wait. His call-up papers had arrived and he was going to war. You hit him and he pulled you close and held you as you cried against his shoulder. The morning he left was the last time he walked beside me. A telegram arrived and you fell to your knees and howled. Your teardrops burst open upon me and I could taste your grief. You looked sad as you shuffled to the shops. You were getting fatter, but one day you were thin again and were pushing a pram. You had a baby daughter and she bawled as loudly as you had on the day that you were born. She cried because she would never know her father. But you, you were strong and you helped her grow. A new family moved next door and their little boy would tickle your daughter's tummy. She laughed just like you. She learned to ride a bicycle and she loved to read. You taught her well. She went to college and came home every holiday. The boy next door wrote to her. You smiled and remembered how it had been for you. You were happy for her the day she married the boy next door. You told him to take care of her and you hugged her tightly. When they got into their car and drove away, 
you cried. Your sister came with a box of cakes from her husband, the baker's son. You both sat and drank wine. She congratulated you on being a wonderful mother and you wondered where all the years had gone. The day you left this world was wet and miserable. The car came out of nowhere and you were thinking of him. You did not see it until the brakes screeched. Its tire marks left a scar on me, but it spilt your life's blood all over me. I was there when you entered the world, and I was there when you left it. I was the road you walked along, and I remember you.